Hey, good morning, Mendham Hills. So, this summer, during our series, Summer Songs, we're taking songs that you know and love and are pulling a biblical truth from them for us to talk about. And so I chose the song, I'm a Believer by Neil Diamond, mostly because it brought me back to a moment in high school where someone straight up asked me, hey, Mike, why do you call yourself a believer? Like, why do you have faith? Really? Like, what? Why? And I'm gonna be honest, at first, I didn't know what to say. I didn't have a good answer for him, and I felt awful walking away because I felt that, man, I should know this one, but I didn't have a good answer for him. So as I prepared for this message, I listened to the song, and it's now like singed into my brain, and it's about how the writer, Neil Diamond, doesn't believe in true love. That's only meant for fairy tales, and goes on and lists the reason he doesn't believe in it. And the first line of the chorus is, then I saw her face, now I'm a believer. So it took him seeing to believe to have faith. There's no doubt in his mind. And I recently have been asking these questions. You know, why does God want faith? Why are we saved by faith? Why not saved by love or by peace? How about humility? So I picked this song for my topic today for a shot at redemption for my friend from high school. Here you go. To answer the question, why does God want us to have faith? Why faith from us? Now, there are a lot of scripture passages on faith, but I chose two stories that I want to compare to help you grasp faith and hopefully leave you with no doubt in your mind. They're both found in the Gospel of Luke, written by the physician Luke, and the first story goes like this, starting in chapter 7, verse 36. One of the fairies asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he, Jesus, said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she, was, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, so Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Let's pick up the next story in chapter 18, verse 35. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired, you know, what this meant. They, were, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. There is something similar about this woman and this man. 
Both of them, Jesus looked at them at one point and said, your faith has saved you. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. And to the man, your faith has made you well. Now what's interesting that made you well is the same word, the same verb in Greek, sozo, as saved. Your English translation isn't wrong, it's the same word. There's a range of meaning to that word. Saved your soul eternally and saved you from the physical predicament that you were in. And I think Jesus uses that word with this blind man because I think Jesus wanted to build the tension that there's more than just giving you sight going on here. So in both of their lives, Jesus looks at them and said, your faith has saved you. It's what kicks off this relationship, this dynamic experience with God. So when we look at these passages, we need to understand three things. What saved them? Why faith of all things? And then what kind of faith? What is the nature of the faith that God wants? So first off, what saved these people? What was it that saved the two of them? Well, it's interesting if you look at the woman in Luke 7, she's known as a great sinner. She's famous for it for in her town. But by the end of the passage, she's known for centuries for other things, her love, her repentance, and her humility. She loved much, and you see it displayed in her actions. She wipes his feet with her hair and washes them with her tears, kisses them with her mouth. Jesus looks at her and and says she has loved much. And that's pretty amazing because Jesus, you know, the embodiment of love, says of this woman that she loved much. What better kind of endorsement than from the most credible sources of love? And yet, he doesn't say, hey, your love has saved you. He says, your faith saved you. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, love is the apple on the tree of which faith is the root. Jesus did not give credit for the fruit, he credits the root. This woman is also known for her repentance. She's weeping so many tears and she's capable of washing feet and and she knows that she's a sinner, she knows what she's done, she knows the decisions that she's made and, and as she realizes the full gravity of them, they break her heart and she wants a different life, but Jesus doesn't say your repentance saves you. He says your faith. And she's known also for her humility. Now, I don't know what her plan was when she got to that house. She hears Jesus was there, you know, a man who could forgive. I say a man who could forgive because, you know, previous to this moment in Luke 5, a paralytic is brought to Jesus, and Jesus, his first words to this man were, your sins are forgiven. That's a huge statement made by Jesus at that time. So I just imagine this woman going around the house to find like the most valuable thing that that she has, this alabaster jar of ointment, and bravely she steps out amongst all of this potential judgment and shame, and she walks to that house. Now I don't know what her plan was, it doesn't tell us. Maybe it was to anoint his head. That was the common thing to do in the day as a sign of honor for somebody to anoint another's head. And so she walks into this house. Jesus is reclining at the table, which means you know his feet were like behind him. How did that work? Well, what, if it was a special dinner with an honored guest, you would sit at a low table, kind of like a coffee table. You'd lean in and you'd recline on your arm, you know, eat some food and discuss, and so naturally your feet would kind of, you know, just flop behind you. And so that's how she walked up. She sees that his feet are, are laying behind him, and so she's standing behind him at his feet. And I think in that moment, she noticed Simon did not give Jesus water for his feet the customary courtesy in the day of dusty roads when you walk into a home. And this man, Simon, he disrespects Jesus. And she sees those dirty feet, and she instantly takes the lowliest and meaningless of tasks, and she falls to his feet. 
And not only does she wash them, she elevates that whole scene by using her tears and her hair and her ointment, and she kisses those feet. This is a woman of humility. But Jesus doesn't say, your humility has saved you. He says, your faith has. Or you look at the story of the blind man that Jesus healed. What stands out is his earnestness. As Jesus is passing by on his way into Jerusalem, what happens? The blind man asks, who is passing by? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he starts to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone tells him, hey, you know, shut it. You know what, Jesus doesn't want to hear from you. None of us do. And you see, he is shamed publicly, but that doesn't stop him. It says he cried out all the more, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. He keeps going until he gets an audience. And he's known for his earnestness. But Jesus doesn't say your perseverance is what saved you. The blind man, also known for his insight. He's blind, so he has to ask the question, you know, who is this passing by? I sense someone's here, but who is this? And they say, you know, Jesus, son of, Na- you know, of Nazareth, the guy up the street. But the blind man doesn't call him Jesus, son of Nazareth, or Jesus of Nazareth. He calls him Jesus, son of David. He says, Jesus, the long-awaited king. You know, David was the great king in the Old Testament who God promised one of your offspring will be the Messiah, the anointed one, the rightful king who will sit on my throne forever. And this blind man understands that this man walking by in a peasant garb is not what you think he is. That's the son of David, the rightful heir of the king. Son of David, have mercy on me. He gets it right. But Jesus doesn't say your insight, your knowledge will save you. He says your faith has. So this leads us to point number two, why? Like, why faith? Why does he want faith from us? Why think first? One, because God wants it that way. Why does faith save us? Because God wants it that way. And God can do whatever he wants. And it's important not to just blow past that. He gets to choose by what way we are saved, brought into a relationship with him. That's his call. And God has appointed a means of rescue. Faith and his son. You can see it in Romans 10, starting in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And Paul was asked in Acts chapter 16, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the appointed means That's what Jesus said, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when God decided, I want to rescue people from the consequences of their sin and bring them into relationship with me, God chose an appointed means. And he didn't, he said it's it's through confidence. It's through faith, belief in my son. So why? Why? Are we saved by faith? First, because God wanted it that way. You know, this cue the Mandalorian music. This is the way. Okay? And this should be sufficient. But the good news is God is gracious enough to give us a little more than that. I think the other reason we are saved, brought into relationship with God through our faith, is so we would understand that salvation is all through grace. It's through or by the kindness of God that we're rescued. Ephesians 2 says that for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Why aren't we saved by love or repentance or knowledge or perseverance or humility? Because if we were saved by any kind of feeling or working, we would be tempted to ascribe the glory to our feeling and to our working. Even if we admit it, that Jesus did most of the heavy lifting, you know, we would still say, yeah, but I had a hand on it. You know, I did a little. And we're so depraved inside that we would want to take a little bit of credit. Yeah, I figured out the truth. You know, I did some studying. I loved a lot. I did a lot of loving. I did so much giving. Oh, I meditated and I just have so much peace now. We would want to put some honor and glory on us. And God wants us to know that your relationship with me is entirely by my kindness. It's a gift and by my power and ability. So I want you to be saved by faith. So as Ephesians says, it's a gift. Jesus doesn't tell the woman, your love saved you, your repentance saved you, your humility. He doesn't tell the man, hey, your perseverance saved you, your insight saved you. He says, your faith saved you. So why faith? Why does he save us by faith? Why does he want faith? Because faith touches the springs of all of our actions. And we know this, if I have faith that my legs will carry me, I stand on them and I walk. If I have faith that a chair will hold me, I sit in it. If I have faith that there's money in the bank, I spend. But faith touches our affections too. You know, let's talk about money for a second. If I believe money is valuable, if I believe there's value in money, then I don't just believe it's valuable, I start to value it. And if I start to value it, I start to want it. And then I start to move to put my trust in it. My belief informs my values and my values inform my decisions. Because our believing impacts our thinking, our thinking impacts our feelings, our feelings move our feet. So faith touches our heart and our heart moves our bodies. This is how it works with God. Faith touches the springs of our action. If I trust you, I value you. And if I value you, I get feelings about you and it affects how I make choices. For example, if I say I value my wife, if my, if my wife is valuable to me, I'm not just going to say the first thing that pops into my head when we disagree so that I can feel right, so I can win. I'm going to take my thoughts captive, obedient to Christ, is this the right thing to say, is this a good thing to say, is this a loving thing to say, and be gentle towards her so that she can feel loved by me because I value her. And then if I'm successful with that, I don't just go, yeah, great job, Mike. I go, thank you, Lord, because that patience and that grace came from you. That's the brilliance of God saving us by faith. On one side, it protects us from boasting about any credit by our work, and yet faith produces good work on the other side. But it's important to recognize that faith is an instrumental means. Are you saved by faith? Yes, but you have to be clear with what that means. And I, I remember when I was in school, I had professors say, you're not actually saved by faith, you're saved by grace or God's power through the instrument of faith. That's, that's Romans 2. And that's true, but I don't want to diminish these words. Jesus said these words. You just have to qualify and, and understand what they mean. Are we saved by the grace of God? Yes. Does your faith save you? Jesus said yes. But faith saves as an instrumental means. Faith saves you like your mouth feeds you. If you're hungry, does your mouth keep you alive? You could argue that no, it's the sandwich that keeps you alive. Yes, but your mouth is the instrumental means to eat said sandwich. So you are saved by the food through the instrument of your mouth. If you're drowning and I throw you a rope, are you saved by the person on the shore or the, or the grabbing of the rope? Yes. 
person on the shore is what saves you. Faith is the empty hand that grips. So your faith doesn't earn you, it's the instrument. It's saying, I trust you, Jesus. To be who you say you are and to do what you'll say that you'll do. So now we gotta ask the last question. What kind of faith saves? Well, if you were to listen to the lyrics of the song, for Neil Diamond, the writer, you know, what made him believe in love was when he saw this woman's face. Well, now I'm a believer. He had never seen a woman that made him believe in love before until now. And so I wonder, have you seen Jesus correctly? What, you know, when, when you do, you, you might understand the love of God. It's not a fairy tale. It's not, or meant for someone else. That kind of faith that saves is, is one that sees Jesus correctly. Well, what does that look like? You know, well, let's look back again at, at our two people from the passages and see what was it like about them and what's different. First, the kind of faith that God wants is fixed on Jesus. For both of them, they saw Jesus correctly. For her, she walked to that house for Jesus. She didn't anoint the feet of all the disciples. She didn't anoint the feet of all the important people surrounding the room. She had eyes for one person. All my hope is in that man. Her faith was fixed on Jesus. And same with the blind man. He wasn't crying out, hey, uh, anyone else with potential? Help. He said, I need the son of David. I don't need one of his helpers. I don't, I don't need an assistant. I need him. I want him. And I won't stop yelling until I get him. Even when he was blind, he saw. Both of them, their, their faith is fixed on that man. Why? Because that's what God wants from us, from you. He wants you to entirely trust in his son because only his son is powerful enough to save us from the brokenness in us. And only his son was loving enough to even want to. So if your hope of being right with God is built on a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of you, that house is going to fall. If you got one foot on the rock of the, of the finished work of Jesus and one foot on your own merits, you will slip. All of our hope is in that man. I can't save you. This message can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Nothing can. No person can but him. What kind of faith does God want? A faith that is fixed on the person of Jesus. This morning, I can't help but ask you this question. What is it that you put your confidence in or where have you fixed your eyes in? Is it really on Jesus saving you from your brokenness or is it on how successful you are, or, you know, or your reputation, your job, how much respect you have. I wonder if we sometimes live as if those things or type of things are what is of utmost value to us, as if they will save us. The kind of faith that saves, that God is asking for from you, is one that has our eyes fixed on Jesus. The second thing about their faith that was similar is that both of them had a faith that admits its unworthiness. She doesn't interrupt the conversation. She stands behind him. She starts crying. She falls at his feet. She knows, I'm not worthy to be in his presence, and it overwhelms her emotionally to even be near him. She knows, I'm not worthy. I'm dirty. The blind man cries out, have mercy on me. He doesn't qualify it, because if you do, I promise I'll, if you do, maybe I'll loan you my... He knows, I, I got nothing of value to offer you. All I have is need. And that's the kind of faith that God wants. He doesn't want you to pretend that you can assist him. He wants you to be honest about how needy you are. God is not asking to be your last resort. He's asking to be your first priority. 
And that's the beauty of the gospel. You don't have to get cleaned up or dressed up to show up to him. It kind of actually offends him if you try. True faith comes to him and says, I have nothing, but I'm looking to you. Let it be how Diamond put it. There's no doubt in my mind. I don't have to wrestle. I don't have to wonder if I'm really even saved. I can rest in Christ that my salvation has nothing to do with me and everything to do with Jesus. So the third thing that they had in common about their faith, the kind of faith that saves is that faith overcomes opposition. This is why I think this story about the woman is just so beautiful. Because I try to imagine the woman, what was going through her mind before she entered this scene? You know, it's likely she heard Jesus preach before this, you know, maybe at the Sermon on the Mount. It's likely she believed that, that grace was possible even, even, even though she didn't do a thing right religiously. And so she realizes, I need him. I've got a stain on me I can't rub out, but there's a possibility for even someone like me. The whole town knows I'm a sinner, which in that context, it probably means she's had some relationships with multiple men in that town, and they're all aware. But she says, that God can forgive me? I gotta go see him. I I gotta go. When I step out these doors, eyes are looking at me. When I show up at the crowd surrounding the house and I start to push through the crowd, they, they know who I am. When I walk into the house of that Pharisee, I know what kind of looks he's going to give me. You know, the look that says, what are you doing here? She had to overcome so much opposition internally to even muster up the courage to grab that jar and walk out the door to meet Jesus. She didn't stop at the door of the meeting house. She saw the looks from Simon. She knew what they meant, and it didn't stop her from moving. She overcomes the opposition. And the same with the blind man. Son of David, have mercy on me. Quiet, man. No one wants to hear what you think. Son of David, have mercy on me. Hey, man, he don't got time for you. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's interesting. I think most people that I talk to that are, you know, drawn to Jesus because they know they're dirty and can't make themselves clean. They know they're broken and can't make themselves healed. They know that they're wrong, can't make themselves right. You know the biggest obstacle most people run into, what will my social circle think? If I say I follow Jesus, what will my friends think? How many of them will laugh at me? How many of my relatives will be like, you? What kind of social pressure will I face if I align myself with Jesus? But the kind of faith that God wants does all the math and says he's worth it. True faith overcomes opposition by publicly proclaiming it. Jesus doesn't have secret friends. It's not how it works. You know, it's like if you're a healthy dater, you wouldn't say, well, I want to date you, but in secret. No, you're either with me in public or we're not together. And Jesus says, hey, the kind of faith I'm looking for is the kind that says I'm going with him. Yeah, it was hard for her to face the shame. She walked into the house anyway. I don't care who knows it, I need him. And the blind man was willing to yell, I need him. So how are those two different? Her faith is quiet. His faith is loud. I don't know if you noticed that in in the text, you should go back and look at it later today. The woman never says a word. She doesn't speak. And he's full volume. So faith is similar in that it fixes on Jesus, feels its unworthiness, and overcomes public opposition. But when faith expresses itself in our lives, it may look a little different. For her, it looks quiet, tender, falling tears and serving hands. And for some of you, that's what faith looks like. For others, it looks loud. I need him. I want him. Here's a post about him. 
the expression can look different and, and it can match your temperament. And this is difficult in the Christian circle sometimes. You know, we want to say that true faith does X, Y, and Z. No, true faith knows its unworthiness. It fixes its eyes on Jesus and it publicly associates with him. But the expression of it will look as different as silent tears and loud cries. The expression may look different, but the faith is the same. Jesus said the same sentence to both of them. Your faith has saved you. And the second difference was that her faith gave, his faith begged. Her faith expressed itself by looking around the house, find the best thing that she had and bring it to his feet. And for some of you, that's what faith will look like. And for him, he had zero, nada. So he offers nothing except a cry for mercy. And that's okay. According to Diamond, I thought faith, love, was more or less, you know, a given thing. You know, seems the more or less, the, le- the more I gave, the less I got. Oh, yeah. So what's the use of trying? All you get is pain. We think that faith is all about giving, but it's not. We think it's all about trying, but it's not. Your faith does not have to look like you offering some bold gesture, but you offering the deepest, darkest, most broken thing in your heart. God, I've got nothing left to give. I'm done trying. I trust you can heal this thing, that you can change me. Some of you, the most precious thing that you can give your Savior today is your pain. So can I just encourage you today? What kicks off my hope for the future? What kicks off even my love for my enemies? What God has ordained to kick off a right relationship with him and a beautiful grace towards us is faith. Faith that fixes on nothing but the Savior. It's Jesus Christ in my vision, and it's him alone who can save faith that will settle for nothing less, faith that knows it's unworthy, but is unashamed to tell its friends it may look a little different, but it may be quiet, may be loud, may have much to give or much to ask for mercy for. So when you hear this song again, I want you to ask yourself, do I have the kind of faith that God wants? The kind of faith that fixes on Jesus, that sees Jesus correctly, knows its unworthiness, and overcomes public opposition. Some of you may sing, some of you may cry silently. Some of you may jump for joy, and some of you may fall to your knees. It expresses itself differently, but it fixes on the Savior, because it knows it needs him, and it will not stop till it gets him. It doesn't care who sees, who, who sees you chase him. What you need today is faith, and by the grace of God, we've been given a sturdy object for that faith, the unshakable power of the loving, resurrected King Jesus. I see Jesus. Now I'm a believer.